0: you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. The word of the Lord.
1: Today's passage is definitely one of Jesus's greatest hits. It is one of the most beloved and familiar passages of Scripture in all of the New Testament. It's so influential that right now, if I were to ask you, what's a good Samaritan? You all would know the answer, but I won't just treat it as a rhetorical question. What's a good Samaritan? Someone from the, from the audience. Someone, anyone. John? So someone who helps someone from a group that is different from your own. A a Samaritan is a humanitarian. Someone who is willing to serve another person, help another person who is in trouble regardless of who they are. And especially if they don't know them. This would have shocked those who first heard this parable. For whom good Samaritan would have been a contradiction in terms. Samaritans were the bad guys. They were like Russians for Americans during the Cold War. Or to this day, Israelis to Palestinians or Palestinians to Israelis. For a first century Jew, the word Samaritan would have been synonymous with enemy, heretic, traitor. The Samaritans lived in Samaria. Hence, that's where they got their name, which is a territory that's just north of of the kingdom of Judah, which you think of sort of Jerusalem and the surrounding area. And so uh, they were sort of a family feud with the people of Judah because the northern kingdom had split from the southern kingdom in almost a century, a thousand years actually, a millennium before our passage takes place. There had been a split between north and south, And then this northern kingdom had been taken over by the Assyrians, and and the best and brightest had been deported, and and a whole new group of, of people of a different ethnicity and religion had been imported. And then the southern kingdom, Judah, fell, and those people were taken to exile. And then when they came back, there was even greater tension between north and south, between the Judeans, the Jews, and the Sumerians. And things had gotten so bad that that in the famous story of uh, Judas Maccabeus, where we get the story of Hanukkah from, the great Jewish revolt, one of the things that he did when he led the Jewish revolt was he led his troops to Samaria, to Mount Gerizim, which was where the Samaritan temple was. And he destroyed it. And just a few years before Jesus' ministry, the Samaritans had, had tried to do some small part to repay that favor by scattering human bones in the temple in Jerusalem, in order to defile it and desecrate it. So when it came to Samaritans and Jews, there was a thousand-year history of no love being lost. And in fact, if you were here on Ash Wednesday, in Luke 9, we read a passage where Jesus begins, he sets his face towards Jerusalem. And the first thing that he does is he's going to pass through Samaria, but when a Samaritan village hears that Jesus is going to Jerusalem, to that rival worship center, they refuse to let him or his disciples enter. And when this happens, uh, Jesus' disciples rather gleefully ask if Jesus wants them to call down a heavenly airstrike on this Samaritan village. And so you go, you know, those guys had some chutzpah right? They, they say, Look, Jesus, would you like us to call that down? As if that was sort of like in the wheelhouse of things that disciples could do, calling down fire from heaven. And Jesus turns to them and he rebukes them for their request. So like I said, there was no love lost at all between these guys. And not even between Jesus's followers and the Samaritans. So the reaction to Jesus telling a story about a Good Samaritan would have been incredulity. A Good Samaritan was an oxymoron. Like Jumbo Shrimp or True Lies or a critically acclaimed Adam Sandler movie. (laughs) But now to our ears, they, they just go together. It's like peanut butter and jelly. And another... Danger. So we miss that. We, we, we don't get that there was tension. And another danger is that we are so familiar with this parable that we think from the outset we already know what it's all about. The message is basically be a good person, help someone who's in trouble, no matter what. But it's never that easy. And the great irony of our overfamiliarity with this parable is, is that we find ourselves in the same shoes as the lawyer who asked Jesus the question. Who thinks he already has everything figured out and he already knows the answer. And so we go into this encounter with this parable just like he goes into this encounter with Jesus already having everything figured out. So why even bother going through the motions? So we've got to allow ourselves to look at this parable again through fresh eyes, to pay really close attention to the details Because this isn't just some general admonition to do-gooderism. Of course, there's worse things that you could take away and worse things that could happen. But it's about how this really what's a gotcha question from this lawyer becomes a jumping-off point for a radical rethinking of what it means to be a person of God. And it moves us from looking at boundaries out there to examining boundaries in here. To ask not, who are they, but who am I? And the first thing that's striking when we look closely at the details of this encounter between Jesus and the lawyer is the posture that the lawyer assumes. It says that he stood up and asked Jesus a question. And this is in stark contrast to the position of a disciple. A disciple was someone who sat at the feet of their rabbi. Like Mary at the end of our passage, who sits at Jesus' feet and listens to his teaching and assumes the posture of a student, of a disciple. And so sitting at someone's feet is saying, I have something to learn from you. It's a posture of humility. But to stand is to challenge. It is to say that you're at least this person's equal, if not their superior And Luke tells us what his motivation is. This isn't a question born of sincerity. This is a question meant to put Jesus to the test. It's the same word that's used when Jesus goes into the wilderness after being baptized to be tested by the devil. So this is a severe exam that this lawyer is attempting to put Jesus to. The lawyer is acting like a teacher. And that Jesus is his student. The lawyer wants to see if Jesus knows... The obvious answer to his question. We're familiar with this phenomenon. Most of the time when teachers are asking students questions, they're not asking because they want to glean new knowledge for themselves. But because they want to know, have you learned what I'm teaching? Or do you know something that I assume that you already do know or you should know? At my oldest son's preschool, the teacher will ask questions like, what letter does the word horse start with? Or what number comes after seven? It's H and eight, uh, for those of you keeping score at home. Um, and the reason she's asking those questions is not because she is looking to the children to provide her with new information that she herself lacks. If she did, we would have to seriously question her credentials for teaching pre kindergartners But she asks because she says, you know the answer. I want to see if you know the answer. If you have this knowledge or this information that I've been teaching you, or I think you've already been taught. And so the lawyer here is assuming the posture of a teacher, even though he, he I think, somewhat ironically and sarcastically is addressing Jesus as teacher. The lawyer's here, he's going to take Jesus to school. And he's testing Jesus, not in order to learn from him, but to humiliate him. To show that Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. And and that Jesus needs to get a remedial education from the likes of himself. If he's going to run around Galilee without an advanced degree, telling people, no, this is really what the scriptures mean. And this is really what the kingdom of God is like. The lawyer's goal is to put Jesus in his place. But Jesus refuses to be tested. Tested. And so instead of taking the bait, he, he answers the question with a question. Which in its own brilliant way plays on the prejudices of this lawyer. Because not only does Jesus put the lawyer on the spot, but he allows the lawyer to play the part of the teacher. The one he so obviously wanted to assume when he entered into this encounter. So the lawyer asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you teach me. How do you read the scriptures? And the lawyer gives the, the stock answer, which is a combination of Deuteronomy 6, the, the, the Shema, the great central prayer and confession of faith, of Judaism, and Leviticus 19. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the same answer that Jesus gives in, in the other gospels when he's asked the question, what's the greatest commandment? And he says this. On this hangs the entirety of the law and the prophets. And so the lawyer has given the correct answer. He knows his stuff. And so Jesus says, well, you get an A+. plus, Go and do likewise, and you will live. Love God with all that you are. Love your neighbor as yourself, and you will be living a life that is worthy of the age to come. But now we see that the lawyer has fallen into Jesus' trap. For far from being the teacher, Jesus has actually graded him as the student. And so the lawyer, realizing that, 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 that the tables have turned and the position has shifted between who's the teacher and who's the student, asks another question, this time to justify himself. And this question he's asking, he knows is a really sticky question. A hotly debated question amongst the religious authorities and rabbis of Jesus' day. Who is my neighbor? Because there's no clear answer, and this was hotly debated. Because if the law demanded, if it was summarized by this command to love one's neighbor, well, well, then you'd better be pretty sure you understood who your neighbor was. And there were all kinds of different opinions circulating about just how far the obligations of being a neighbor extended. Some thought it was just to fellow Jews. Others that it extended as well to to resident aliens or foreigners or Gentiles who were somehow a part of the community. But what was clear in all of these debates was that the identity of one's neighbor was a limiting concept. It was about drawing a line regarding the obligations of one's love. It wasn't a question that you had to draw a line somewhere. It's just where are you going to draw it? What are the limits of the obligations of my love? What kind of person is on the inside? What kind of person is on the outside of who I need to love? And so that was the question that the lawyer asked Jesus. Tell me, Jesus, where do you draw That line. And instead of answering the question directly, Jesus told a story. A story about a certain man who was robbed, stripped naked, and left for dead on the side of the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And this was a a, a well-traveled and dangerous road. And the details about this man are not incidental to the parable, but they're at the core of it. Since he's naked and half dead, which means he's lying there unconscious, there's no way to know who this man is. You can't see his clothes, see what maybe country or religious group he affiliated with. You can't hear his accent you can't know what region he comes from or what language he speaks. So it's impossible to know anything about him. Not his religion, not his ethnicity, not his nationality, not what class he belongs to, whether he's righteous or unrighteous, a sinner or a saint, a Jew or a Gentile. He's just a person lying there in need. And there's no way that anyone who approaches him can know anything else about him except that he's in trouble, and if they don't help him, he's probably going to die. And so the first person who approaches him on this road is a priest. And presumably we can think that this priest was on his way home from serving in the temple. And priests were at the apex of society. They were the only ones who could perform the sacrifices in the temple. So you can see that, that if, if, if the temple was about making sure that the relationship between God and God's people was maintained, that that, that, that delicate cosmic order and balance was maintained, that priests were incredibly important. And priests also served as ministers of of public health. If you had leprosy or a skin condition, and the priests were the ones who could determine who was inside the community and who needed to be on the outside. There's a famous story of when Jesus heals the leper, and he says, go show yourself to the priest, and then you can be welcomed back into the community. So priests were like ministers of public health, and they were legal experts too, and so they were also Settled disputes. They were like the the judges in each and every community. If you had a problem with your neighbor, a point of dispute about what was happening, you'd go find a priest and the priest would adjudicate. It was like the people's court in each and every village with priests dispersing justice. And the priests were the political leaders. It was the priests that the Romans looked to as the representatives of the Jewish people and the ones that they relied on to, to, to keep them in line. And so in the social and religious and political and cultural and economic hierarchy of first century Palestine, the priests were right there at the top. They were the ruling class. And so here is this man, this pillar of society, this expert in the law, this person who was seen as as a, a paragon of virtue. He sees this naked, unconscious man on the side of the road, and he goes to the other side, and passes by and we aren't told why we aren't given any good reason we can only speculate that it was perhaps that he he worried that contact with this man would render him ritually unclean as a priest it was very important to not cross that boundary between the sacred and the profane because if you did if you did render yourself unclean then he'd have to turn right back around go up to jerusalem present himself at the temple, rend his garments, say, I have been polluted. He would have had to offer a heifer in order to make himself ritually pure again. And so this would have been a a, a costly and time-consuming affair. It would have cost him his reputation. It it, it would have cost him, you know, several more days of journeying. And and buying a, a, a cow in those days was expensive. Sort of cost him reputation, time, and money. And so, for whatever reason, when he saw this man on the side of the road, he said, It's just not worth the risk. I don't have to, so I'm not going to. And so, the first point Jesus is making is this that it, it, it's not enough to just have the right theology like this priest certainly did who knew the Bible. He knew the law. He believed the right things. He, he, he did the right things. That only got him so far. His orthodoxy only got him so far. But it was about the rightness of his conduct, orthopraxy, that he needed as well. Because what good is it to know the right things about God, to believe the right things about God, if we won't do the right thing? And I'm someone who loves theology and believe that it it matters, but this parable is a warning to people like me. You can believe all the right things, uh, believe the creed with your whole heart, never cross your fingers when you say any line. But when you're faced with a situation of desperate need and danger and inconvenience, what are you willing to do? What are you willing to risk in order to love someone else? But the next man who comes down the road is a Levite. And Levites weren't, weren't, weren't quite as high up as the priests, but they were up there. They also served in the temple. They were like the priest's assistants. And so they did a lot of the you know crowd control and security and maintenance and a lot of the butchering, at, actually, of the sacrificial animals that the priests end up sacrificing. So they were important, but they weren't quite as important as the priests. And the thing about this road from Jericho down to Jerusalem is that it 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 goes down about thirty five hundred feet over the course of seventeen miles. It goes Jericho is almost it's right by the the Dead Sea, so you go from like twenty five hundred feet to like over a thousand feet below sea level. And so on this road, since it's it slopes so sharply, you can see for miles and miles as you're going on. And so it, it it's safe to assume that the Levite saw his priestly colleague pass by the man. On the side of the road. And so if he had stopped. And tended to this man. It would have been an affront. To someone who was his social. And his religious superior. It would have sent a clear message. I know better than you. It would have been tantamount. To an act of social insubordination. It's like on the show. Friends. When Ross goes out to dinner. With Rachel and her dad. And he leaves a really bad tip. And so Ross, like, throws some extra cash on the table. And, 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 and Rachel's dad is like, oh, oh, so you think you're Mr. Big Shot now. It was an act of social insubordination, saying, you are treating me, but I know better than you. And so a similar thing going on here with the Levite. If he does this to the priest, it would be an affront, a way of shaming someone who he was supposed to honor. Who was he, a layman? to question the conduct of this religious expert. And so even though the text tells us, Luke says that, you know, the, 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 the priest just went by, the Levite, it says, took a closer look, but at the end of the day, he still crossed over to the other side of the road and went on. Better to not rock the boat. And so this is the second point that Jesus is making. The first one is, if you're going to love someone, you're going to have to take risks. The second is if you want to love your neighbor, then you have got to be willing to swim against the stream. Sometimes you're going to have to go against the grain. One of my favorite quotes from G.K. Chesterton is this, A dead thing can go with the stream. Only a living thing can go against it. A dead dog can be lifted up on the leaping water with all the swiftness of a leaping hound. It's kind of a macabre image. But only a live dog can swim backwards. So who or what are you willing to resist in order to love someone else? And lastly, who happens upon the scene but a Samaritan. The bad guy. The enemy. And instead of moving by, passing by, he is moved with compassion. And the word for compassion is this word that gets used of Jesus in the gospel. It means that he was stirred to his guts. It was like a gut punch seeing this person helpless on the side of the road. And instead of keeping a safe distance, he literally gets his hands dirty, cleaning and binding this man's wounds. He assumes the posture of a slave or a servant by letting this man ride on his animal while he walks in front of it, And he leaves him at an inn. And he pays, he leaves two denarii, which would have been enough for about three and a half weeks of a stay. At an inn, And he says, if there's any extra expenses, I will return and pay those. And innkeepers were notorious for their bad conduct. And so here's this shady character. He's giving him money and he's saying, I'll come back and pay you any more money if you need it. And so the love that this Samaritan shows for a man that he doesn't know, a man who never says anything in this passage, who might not even be conscious, who, who might not even live at the end of the day, is extravagant. And this is grace in action. It is practical, it is costly, it is risky, and it comes from unexpected places. Jesus' last point, his main point, his biggest point is this, that the lawyer is asking the wrong question. And because he's asking the wrong question, he's never going to get the right answer. Notice Jesus' question that he gives him at the end. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. The question isn't who is my neighbor. But instead what are the limits of my neighborliness. And the answer after hearing this parable is none. There is no limit to whom we are called to show Christ like mercy. It's not about drawing the line between you know, who is and who isn't my neighbor. Instead it's examining the lines that we've drawn in our hearts about who we will And who we won't be a neighbor to. The 20th century French philosopher and Christian Paul Ricoeur remarked when he was studying this parable. He said, you don't have neighbors. You either are or you aren't a neighbor. And being a neighbor, he wrote, lies in the habit of making oneself available. It's not who are my neighbors. But who am I willing to be a neighbor to? So to be a neighbor, we've got to ask the right question because that question, who is my neighbor? The question that the lawyer asks, it's unanswerable and it shouldn't be asked because love doesn't begin by defining its objects but by discovering them. True love risks, true love goes against the grain. True love asks, how can I love beyond my own self-imposed limits because that's what Christ did. And the last thing I'll say is this, that when the early church fathers read this parable, they always interpreted it as being about Jesus. That Jesus was the good Samaritan. He is the good Samaritan. He's the one who stops when he sees us half dead on the side of the road. He binds our wounds. He carries us. He pays the cost for us, and he will return again for us. And he does all of this as an act of sheer grace. We don't deserve this mercy. We can't repay this mercy back. And yet, and yet, and yet, his mercies are unending and unceasing. Go and do likewise. Take risks. Swim against the grain. And love without limits. And we will begin to comprehend a fraction of the limitless love of God we see in Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please pray with me.